This is study 4 in the book of Job, from chapters 16 to 19, where Job continues to struggle. In these chapters, Job says some truly astonishing things that we may otherwise overlook. To give you an idea of what is to come, these are. In chapters 16 and 17, he reckons that he has been attacked by God, which leads to him saying that he has been abused by God. And then after a further statement from Bildad in chapter 18, which implies that he, Job, must be a wicked man, Job says in chapter 19 that although God is against him, he has a strong hope that he will be able to state his case before the heavenly court, and he hopes to be supported by an effective advocate. Who exactly that advocate will be is not clear to him, though perhaps it is to us. First, the relatively easy passage in chapter 16, the first five verses, where Job is asking himself how he would do if he was trying to comfort a friend who was suffering as he is suffering. Here it is. Job says, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. If someone else is suffering, it is so easy to stack up a heap of conventional phrases such as, you will soon feel better, even when we know that our friend is dying, or when we visit someone in hospital, cheer up, I've brought you some grapes, which we then proceed to eat while our friend cannot face food of any sort, and so on. Question. How do you do as a comforter? How would you rate yourself? Answer up to you, of course. Paul never actually lists comforting as a gift. He does tell the Christians in Corinth that we should all be good at comforting because we claim, as our Father God, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort. But I do think some people are given a very real gift to say the right and helpful thing more than others do when faced with suffering. Some people are more adept at saying the wrong things than the right and helpful thing when someone is having a very bad time. If you are a gifted comforter, make sure you use your gift as much as possible. Now we come to the difficult passage in chapter 16, verses 6 to 17. Job says his God is his enemy, his attacker, and that there is such a thing as divine violence and abuse. Here it is. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up, and it has become a witness. 
My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. People open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. Is it really so? Or is Job just lashing out with words in his frustration and bitterness at what has happened to him and his for no reason he can begin to understand? I have been fortunate enough to live a peaceful life without any major traumas, but many of you listening or reading this may well be shut in, unable to get out much because of some major trauma in your life, or struggling in other ways. So I must be careful what I say from a position of inexperience. There are other statements like this in Scripture. The psalmist says, Your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down on me, but then goes on to say, Because of my sin. The book of Lamentations, chapter 3, talks at length of the violence of God, but the writer cannot believe that will go on forever because of his unfailing love, and traces the problem back to sin. Job never does that. There will eventually be comfort for Job when we get to the last chapter of the book, but there was no comfort for the Jewish members of God's ancient people who died in the Holocaust less than a hundred years ago. There are, I think, three lessons here. One, in extremes of anguish, we may, and even perhaps should, shout at God without losing our faith and our standing before him. Two, God is with us, as he was with Job and will be in the succeeding chapters, whatever may happen. And three, usually, but not always, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We are always subject to the NCL, the normal chaos of living. That is the way God created the world. We are in that world, and therefore have to accept that world the way he designed it even when we do not understand the design principles. Jesus taught us to think of God as our loving Heavenly Father, contrasting sharply with the most obvious Old Testament picture of a creator, ruler, judge. Even though there, God is also a covenant God 
of steadfast love and faithfulness. Job evidently thought mainly of the creator, ruler, judge God and could not resolve the apparent conflict between that God and the covenant God. Neither will we ever be able to do so. We have to live with that conflict, holding to both images, not despairing because we cannot resolve the paradox, continuing to honour and trust the Lord and drawing strength from both biblical pictures. Only that way will we be able to live with the complexity of life that we cannot fully understand or resolve. Job is very ready to give up. He says this in the vivid pictures of chapter 17. Here it is. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore you will not let them triumph. If anyone denounces their friends for reward, the eyes of their children will fail. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. The upright are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways and those with clean hands will grow stronger. But come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed. My plans are shattered. Yet the desires of my heart turn night into day. In the face of the darkness, light is near. The only home I hope for is the grave. If I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Next, Bildad speaks up in chapter 18. He makes a fundamental mistake. He thinks the line between good and evil passes between people with some on one side, some on the other. But in the real world, it is not so. The line between good and evil runs through all of us. Some of you, some of me, is on one side, some on the other. We are, like all the human race, made in the image of God, but on the other hand have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Bildad is sure that Job is entirely the wrong side of the line between good and evil. He doesn't quite say so, but it is very clear that that is what he thinks is why Job has had such a tough time. And so to the famous chapter 19. Famous because of one phrase, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one song in Handel's Messiah. But is it really a statement about Jesus? 
we need to look at it carefully. I'll read the first five verses where Job continues to react against his so ineffective comforters. Job said, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. At this point, I'm going to switch from the NIV that I've been using as the version you are most likely to have to the contemporary English version, the successor to the Good News version, because the argument is easier to follow in that. In the next 17 verses, he describes his plight in some vivid images. He is trapped in a hunter's net, a landslide blocks his way, he is caught in the dark, he loses his high place in society, he is uprooted like an old tree, he is besieged in his dent. Worse than all that, he has lost all his closest relationships with family, household and friends. It is a sorry story which I now read. Though I pray to be rescued from this torment, no whisper of justice answers me. God has me trapped with a wall of darkness and stripped of respect. God rips me apart, uproots my hopes and attacks with fierce anger as though I were his enemy. His entire army advances, then surrounds my tent. God has turned relatives and friends against me and I am forgotten. My guests and my servants consider me a stranger. When I call my servants, they pay no attention. My breath disgusts my wife. Everyone in my family turns away. Young children can't stand me. And when I come near, they make fun. My best friends and loved ones have turned from me. I'm skin and bones, just barely alive. My friends, I beg you for pity. God has made me his target. Hasn't he already done enough? Why do you join the attack? Yet all is not lost. In a surprising and memorable passage, Job now turns to God. These are verses 23 and 24. I wish that my words could be written down or chiseled into rock. He wants what he says to be recorded, not in a computer memory which can be so easily erased, but engraved in rock with the letters filled with lead so they can be read forever. At least, that is what he hopes for. The contemporary English version has, I wish, and the NIV has, oh that. He has no certainty. But then he makes his great pronouncement. Here it is, verses 25 to 27. 
I know that my Saviour lives, and at the end he will stand on this earth. My flesh may be destroyed, yet from this body I will see God. Yes, I will see him for myself, and I long for that moment. It is all about his goel, as the original word is, translated as redeemer or saviour, his kinsman redeemer, who will come to his rescue. Even after all his bitter and angry statements railing against God, he knows that only God, or some delegate of his, will be adequate to come to his rescue. The Old Testament Goel was a close kinsman, an elder brother, or a senior uncle, or some other close and senior family member, whose responsibility it was to avenge a wrong, buy back a field that was in danger of being lost to the family estate, or marry a widow to continue the family, as Boaz, the best-known Goel, did for Ruth. Experts argue about whom Joan was thinking of when he wrote that. We don't have to argue about who our Goel is. It is Jesus. It is rather surprising that the Goel does not appear in the New Testament. The writer to the Hebrews perhaps gets closest when he says Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, but he then goes on to talk about him as our high priest and not as our Goel. However, we can say with certainty that he is our kinsman. For Galatians 4, 7 says, You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. He is Jesus, as it were, our elder brother. And he is our redeemer, as Peter says in his letter. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. So he is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. For Job, it was just a hope, and I wish. But for us, it is a certainty. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. We're all capable of sliding into a dark, damp ditch of despair, perhaps not as deep and dark as the one poor old Job had got into, but just as real to us. But we have a better promise and a clearer hope than he ever had. Brother, sister, have courage.